You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. It happened to George in 1776. Uh, It happened to Louis in 1789 and Nicholas in 1917. I'm talking about uh, revolution. I'm talking about rebellion. I'm talking about the rejection of, when I say George, I mean King George and a King Louis and and Tsar uh, Nicholas. These were all rulers of nations whose people said, we reject you. We don't want you to be ruling over us anymore. It's been a part of history. I only went back a few centuries, but if you keep going back, there's just rejection after rejection, revolution after revolution, rebellion after rebellion, people rejecting their king, their leader, their ruler. And love what's happening right now. In fact, It's been happening since about, you know, 4,000 B.C. or thereabouts. It happened in the Garden of Eden. It's happening in 2017 in the city of Brampton. Because uh, there is a king. He may not be a geographical or politically defined king, but there is a universal spiritual king overall that is repeatedly being rejected, that there is an ongoing revolution. There is a rebellion going on. And we're given a window into that rebellion in 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you have a Bible with you, open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers will help you with that. They're coming up and down the aisle right now. Just put up your hand. We want to make sure everyone has a chance to follow along. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, we are given a clear picture of the people of God rejecting God as their king. And we're going to read this story today, and we're, we're going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and then we're going to read 1 Samuel chapter 9, and chapter 10, and chapter 11. I'm not even joking. But as we're reading the story of the people of God rejecting God as their king, we're not reading this like we're learning about the French Revolution, or the American War of Independence, or, or the, the Bolshevik uprising in Russia. We're not We're not reading it just to sort of learn some historical facts. No, we're reading this to learn about ourselves. Because all of us, at one time, or are continuing to do this right now, have rejected God as our king. And here's the amazing thing. God refuses to be rejected as king. You can't have a revolution and overthrow God as king. And here's the amazing thing. This is the kind of king that God is, that he is the kind of king who even though we are a people who reject him, he continually rescues and redeems us. That's what we're going to see from this passage today. That even in the midst of our rejection, God is continually reaching out towards us for redemption and for rescue. Let's pick up the story in 1 Samuel 8 verse 1. It says, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. 
That's awfully blunt, isn't it? And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now we're eight chapters into this amazing book and we're already learning uh, quite a bit about the dynamics of parenting, aren't we? Well, um, Eli was this, was this priest. He seemed, he seemed like a guy who loved the Lord, who was trying to, to honor God. And yet he had these two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and they were a disaster. And then Samuel, the one who was called by God. He was a prophet even in childhood and then functioned as this judge, priest, prophet all over, the, all over the nation of Israel. And yet his sons don't follow in his ways. A pastor scholar, Tom Schreiner, said, God has no grandchildren. When I heard him say that, I was like, what, what do you mean by that? But he went on to explain, God only relates to people as father. It doesn't matter if your parents believe in God, God refuses to be your grandfather, he wants to be your father. Each person from each generation must personally decide to live for God or to live for themselves. And Joel and Abijah, it's described there in verse, uh, in verse 3 that they went after gain. Rather than serving God, they went for gain. They perverted justice, they took bribes. It was interesting, as you follow the rest of the story in First and Second Samuel, those of you who are familiar with the Bible, the only character in the Bible that actually raises a well-adjusted, godly child is Saul, Jonathan. He, he's the only one who has kids that turned out right, and he's the one who you think wouldn't have kids that would turn out right. But God doesn't relate to us as grandfather. He wants to relate to us as father. So they're not happy that Samuel's getting old. And they definitely don't want his sons to be judged. So here's what they say at the end of verse 5. Now appoint for us a king to judge like all the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Samuel gives us a good example there. He's displeased about something. And so he prays about it. I've got to be honest. If this verse was being written about me. So this thing displeased Ted. It would probably be, so Ted started arguing back at the people and explaining to them why that was a bad idea. But Samuel gives us a really good example here. He was displeased with what was going on, and he brought that before the Lord, and the Lord answered him. Verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people. That's a scary statement that gets repeated throughout this passage. Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Do you see what God is doing here? Do you see what, the last thing he said there? Forsaking me and serving other gods? You see, he's taking this, this idea of asking for a king and idolatry, serving other gods, and he's saying, this is the same thing. This is just the same old story. Turning to another god is the same thing as asking for a king. Now, it was always God's intention to have a king over his people. I mean, he, made it, he laid out a plan for them of how it was supposed to work in Deuteronomy chapter 17. But the way that they were asking for a king here was revealing the idolatry that was going on in their lives. Make note of this today, that, that our prayer to the true God can actually reveal our allegiance to false gods. 
This, this, is, this is a prayer request. Samuel, go and pray. And, and, but the prayer request, are sometimes our prayers to the true God actually reveal that we're not about God. And we don't truly want him and his will. We want our idol. You see, there's, there's nothing wrong with wanting a king. The problem was trusting in that king. Why do you want the king? Do you want the king there to do God's will, or do you want the king there for your own purposes and passions and desires? Psalm 118, verse 8 and 9 gives us this warning. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Psalm 146, verse 3. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. You see, the idolatry here is that they were trusting. They wanted to rely on the king. They didn't want to have to rely on God. They wanted to rely on a new leader for their nation. And notice that they had, they had an idolatry issue. But before they had an idolatry issue, they have an identity issue. If you go back to verse 5, it says, Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. The issue was identity. They had forgotten who they were. Paul Tripp says we all have identity amnesia. We forget who we are in Christ as sons and daughters of God. The people of God at this time had forgotten that God had rescued them on eagles' wings and saved them from the land of Egypt to make them his treasured possession. A holy nation, a royal priesthood, a light to the Gentiles. Not to copy the Gentiles. But they, start, they stopped thinking about themselves as the chosen people of God with God as their king. And then, so they started only thinking about themselves on their own. And they looked at themselves on their own. They saw that they were weak and empty. And so they were looking for something. They were looking for an idol. And isn't this, isn't this what happens in our lives? We get our eyes off of God, our eyes onto ourselves. We take one look of ourselves and we see something that's empty and something that is finite and something, and we long for something more. And so we reach out to an idol. So the identity problem leads to an idolatry problem. Also notice here that what the people want, so the judge thing isn't working out, okay? The judge, the, the present judge is too old. The new judges are, are corrupt, and you see, the problem here is it's a spiritual problem. But they turn it into a structural systems problem. They think, well, the, 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 the whole judge thing isn't working, so we need to change the system. We need a king. And don't we so often do that as a church? You know, we can identify areas where we need to grow as a church. We need to do a better job of reaching out into our community. We need to do a better job of connecting as a, as a, as a church family. We, we don't have enough fellowship happening. And so what do we do? Rather than getting on our faces and praying about it, we get out the whiteboard and try to come up with some new structure or some new strategy. But it's not a, it's not a strategy problem. It's not a structure or a system problem. It's a spiritual problem. And so the people are worshiping this idea, this concept, if we only had a God, if I only had this, that's one of the telltale signs of, of idolatry. If we only had, my life would be complete if I only had that particular relationship, if I only were able to get that degree or get into that school or a, a, achieve that position at work or have that relationship. That can so, those things can so easily become our king, can become our idol. 
and all of our prayer is just, God, you're just a means to an end. What I really want is this, but I'm praying to you so that you would give me this. And so, in verse 9, he says, Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Verse 10, so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons. Then look down at verse 13. He will take your daughters. Verse 14. He will take the best of your fields. Verse 15. He will take. Verse 16. He will take. Verse 17. He will take. He will take, he will take, he will take, he will take. We think that our idols will give, but what our idols end up doing is taking. They, 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 they thought that if they had a king, he would make their lives better if they had a king like the nations. But he was going to make their lives worth. If you keep reading verse 17, he will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. They wanted freedom. They were afraid of the surrounding nations around them. But what they should have been afraid of was the consequences of having a king over them, like the kind of king that they were asking for, a king like the nations. So he lays out all of, this re- all of these reasons. Of, this is why you shouldn't be asking for this kind of a king. God should be your king over you. Verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. So... Samuel gives his reasons, and then now it would be time for them to give their reasons. But they don't have any reasons. They just say, no, but. Isn't that just like us? You see, here's the thing. Idolatry makes us illogical. It doesn't matter how much information we have. We live in a world that says, well, we just need to educate people, and then they make better choices. It doesn't matter how much information we have. If we're going after an idol, that is all we want, and it doesn't matter what people tell us. No but. It says, verse 20, here's the identity thing again, that we also may be like the nations And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They wanted the king to go and fight their battles. Do you remember chapter 7? Do you remember how God was doing a pretty good job of fighting their battles for them, right? The Philistines are surrounding them at Mizpah and they're having a prayer service and a sacrifice. And then God sends that thunder. He was doing all right fighting battles. But they they had forgotten their identity which caused them to focus on idolatry, and then the the result is going to be slavery. And that, loved ones, is the continuum that all of us find ourselves on sometimes, isn't it? We forget who we are, identity. We think we need something, idolatry. And then that thing that we thought would give us freedom actually enslaves us, slavery. Verse 21 And when Samuel had heard the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. Again, he's praying about this. Verse 22, the Lord said to Samuel, this is the third time he said these chilling words, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. I don't know if you've experienced this. I certainly have. Sometimes God's greatest kindness to us is unanswered prayer. Can you say an amen to that? But there's a flip side to that. It is true. Sometimes God's greatest kindness is unanswered prayer. Sometimes God's greatest severity comes in the form 
of answered prayer. Sometimes God gives us what we ask for as a means of expressing his displeasure or, or disciplining his people. And that's exactly what happens here. Obey their voice. Give them a king. Give them what they're asking for. We see this all, the, the Romans 1 is just a description of, of God giving people what they, what they want. It happened in the wilderness when, when people were going to the promised land, they wanted meat so badly, didn't they? And so they rebelled against God and against Moses and demanded that they have meat. And God gave them what they wanted. Psalm 106 verse 13 says, They soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. Notice this. He gave them what they asked but sent a wasting disease among them. And so they had barely even digested the, the, the meat that they were so longing that they thought they couldn't live without before they were vomiting it up again. Sometimes our prayers to the true God can actually reveal our allegiance to false gods. Sometimes our prayer requests can sometimes actually be an active rebellion or rejection of God, But listen, God loves us even when we pray that way. God loves us too much to keep us that way. And he, he reveals the idolatry in our heart. And he reminds us of our identity. And he rescues us from the slavery. So he's going to give them a king. And we're introduced to him in 1 Samuel chapter 9. Says there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bacorath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth, and he had a son whose name was Saul. Now the word Saul is the word asked for. King Saul is the king that they asked for. They are getting what they requested in rejecting God. Verse 2 says that Saul was a handsome young man, and there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. And from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. He was a tall drink of water. He was tall, dark, and handsome. Verse 3, now the, son, no, no, sorry, now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men, with you and arise and go and look for the donkeys. How did donkeys get lost? I don't know. Maybe one of the donkeys saw a boulder and said, I like that boulder. That's a nice boulder. And then they all camped out there and one of them said, tomorrow I'm making waffles. Uh, maybe that's how donkeys get lost. I don't know how the donkeys got lost. But it, just, it seems sort of like an ordinary, just kind of mundane kind of thing. Like, so, like, the story just seems to change so dramatically. Like, okay, Israel's going to get a king, and then it's like donkey hunt. It just seems strange, doesn't it? But make note of this. Our ordinary life is the backdrop for God's extraordinary plan. Saul thought he was just out looking for some donkeys. He was, it was just a routine mission for him. Just an, an everyday kind of a situation, but this was how God's extraordinary plan was going to unfold. And so when you get to verse 5, the, the, the search for the donkeys had, had not gone 
well. Verse 5, it says, When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. So it's not going well. Then his servant said in verse 6, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a, a man who is held in honor, and all that he says come true. He's talking about Samuel. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Let, let's ask this prophet to tell us where the donkeys are. And so in the, the next few verses, they're trying to decide on, oh, how are we going to pay him? Or do we need to bribe him? Or how do we do this whole prophet thing? So they figure that out. And then they get to the city where Samuel was. And they have to stop and ask uh, directions. But then we're given insight into how this ordinary activity that's being carried out by Saul was actually part of God's extraordinary plan. Look at verse 15. It says, Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. And so Saul's on this donkey hunt, but God had a purpose and a plan for it. And here's the, here's the incredible thing. Did you, did you catch what God said at the very end to Samuel there in verse 16? He says, I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Make, make note of this, loved ones. Even in the midst of God's judgment, there is still evidence of God's mercy. Even God's judgment is filled with indications of God's mercy. Saul was the, the asked-for one. They, they got what they requested. Saul as king was, was a, a means of judgment, a means of discipline on the people of God. To, to let its idolatry run, their, run its course. But even in the midst, God still had a plan. Hey, Saul is part of the plan to, because I've seen them. Their cry has come to me. He's going to deliver them from the Philistines. God, can't, Listen, you need to understand this. God can't help but be kind to you. If you are among his people here today, even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of his discipline in your life, he can't help but be gracious and merciful because that's who he is. He is abounding in steadfast love. And so we're going to see that as the rest of this story plays out, that God is continually kind to his people, even though they are undeserving. And so they... They meet up, Saul and Samuel connect, and uh, in verse 20, Samuel says, As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. So, if you follow the story, Saul never asked about the donkeys. But Samuel just said, I know you're worried about donkeys right now, but there's something bigger, okay? I know you're worried about this ordinary stuff, but I've got something extraordinary to tell you, Saul. And, and there's, a, there's, a bit of a, there's a bit of a lesson even in that, isn't it? Saul is proving to be incompetent at looking after donkeys. 
he will prove to be equally incompetent as a king. But here's the thing. The donkeys made it home okay. The donkeys were all right. Even though the guy looking after the donkeys was incompetent, the donkeys were okay. In the same way, even though Saul is going to be completely incompetent as a king, the people of God are going to be okay. Because even God's judgment is filled with indications of God's mercy. Then after he tells them about the donkeys in verse 20, it says, And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? He's basically saying everything, this whole land, everything desirable in this great country, it's yours, Saul. He's basically calling Saul king. And Saul's response, verse 21, he says, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? The first thing out of Saul's mouth is, aren't I a Benjamite? And if you look back at when, when God told Samuel someone was coming to him in verse 15, he made it clear that it was a Benjamite. And chapter 9, verse 1 started, now there was a man of Benjamin. It, it's very significant that this person, Saul, was a Benjamite. And Benjamin was one of the tribes of Israel. Uh, Israel, they, they were all, the, they're the sons of a Jacob. And uh, Jacob had a very uh, dysfunctional family, multiple wives and children from all of these, children from all of these wives. And, and Jacob had a favorite wife. Benjamin was the last son born to his favorite wife, and she died in childbirth. Benjamin was like, he was the youngest, he was the favorite. Is anyone else here the youngest? I'm the youngest. I know more of you are the youngest, but you're just expecting someone else to raise their hand for you. Because that's what youngest do. They just expect everyone else to, to, do, to do things for them. And Benjamin was sort of always being protected. Remember, it was all about Benjamin in when, when Joseph was in Egypt and the, and the other brothers were coming to Egypt and, oh, you got to bring Benjamin with you, but the father's like, no, we can't bring Benjamin. And then Benjamin gets left behind and everyone's worried about Benjamin. Everyone loves Benjamin. And then as the, the, as the people um, get into the promised land, Benjamin was this mighty tribe. Strong warriors, huge population, really well-known, well-respected, this revered tribe among the people of Israel. But then when you get to the end of the book of Judges, something awful happens. And I would say that what, what is described at the very end of Judges, and remember, 1 Samuel is just a continuation of what was already described in the book of Judges, which ends, ends with the statement, there was no king in Israel. The very end of the book of Judges, something happens, I think, apart from what was done to the Son of God, I think that what's recorded at the end of the book of Judges is the most evil act recorded in the entire Bible, and it happened in the tribe of Benjamin. And that evil act resulted in a civil war among all of the tribes against one, against Benjamin. Benjamin almost gets completely wiped out as a result. So Benjamin, that used to be so, so well-known and so much reverence for this great tribe and the favorite youngest son, now had hardly any population and had almost as a stain on that name, on that tribe, this atrocious act that took place in that place. 
And so that's why Saul says, well, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. This can't be, this can't be right. And Saul begins with really what seems like genuine humility. But as you follow that, what seems like genuine humility really gets revealed later on in the story as a horrible inferiority complex. Saul had a real identity problem. He wasn't ever viewing himself in light of who God was. And so he was always feeling insecure and inferior, especially when David came along. But he started with what seemed like genuine uh, humility. Then in verses uh, uh, 22 uh, down to 25, they feast together. And then um, uh, Samuel provides lodging for Saul and his servant. And then in verse 27, it says, as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. He says, send your servant along. We need to have a private conversation. And then in the midst of that private conversation, chapter 10, verse 1, then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. God was compassionate. Even in the midst of judging them by giving them a king like Saul, he was still going to use Saul to protect and lead his people. Even though Saul would prove to be incompetent, his people would be okay because he loves his people. At the end of verse 1, he says, and this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. So he uses the word anointed there twice. It says that he poured a flask of oil. That's what anointing means, to have oil poured on you. He says, this will be the sign. And then he lists three signs. Verse 2. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? So that's the first sign. You're going to bump into a couple of people. They're going to tell you about the donkeys. Verse 3. Then you shall go on from there a farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a skin of wine, and they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. So you're going to meet some more people, you're going to get some bread out of it. That's the next sign. Verse 5, and you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison to the Philistines, and there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre. The worship team is going to be there before them prophesying. Verse 6, then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. So he, he gave Saul these three signs to confirm. The, the people talking about the donkeys, the people giving out bread, and then him starting to prophesy among the other prophets. And all of those things happened on that day. And that might have just been ordinary activity for some of the other people. But 
It was all part of God's extraordinary plan. But I want to zero in on a couple of statements here that are, that are described in the narrative. It, it, it says that you'll be turned into another man. And then it says that God gave him a new heart. Now I want to make sure that we're not confusing what's being described here with what the New Testament describes as being born again or the act of regeneration, being, receiving the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's not the same thing. Those are two different things. The Spirit came on Saul, but then the Spirit would leave a Saul. When, when a, a new believer becomes a new man, when we are given a new heart, that is a permanent change that happens. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. So what's being described here, although it's similar in language, it's describing something very different. So we need to make sure that we're not confused there. Then verse 10 kind of skips over the first two signs and goes into detail about the third sign. It says, when he came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. When all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul among the prophets? And so everyone's sort of trying to understand what's going on. And then his, his uncle is trying to piece things together. He hears that he had some sort of visit with Samuel, the, the, the prophet, and now Saul is prophesying. Everyone's trying to figure out what happened to Saul. Verse 15, Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys have been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. So Saul, you know, he's trying to keep it on the DL right now. And he doesn't want a whole lot of people to know, but when we get to uh, the next verse, God's going to make things very public. Verse 17, now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you, but today you have rejected your God. Same message. We're three chapters into the story, and God's just saying the same thing. This whole king thing is a rejection of me as your king. Verse 20, it says, Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by lot. So they drew straws and to, to narrow it down. Okay, so among the 12 tribes of Israel, which straw is going to be drawn? And Benjamin, now remember the history behind Benjamin. As soon as Benjamin drew the short straw, everyone would have gasped. What? Someone, someone from Benjamin is going to rule over us? They're going to be, just, just like Saul was shocked, the people would have been shocked as well. Verse 21, and he brought the tribe of Benjamin near its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found, searching for a king, but can't find him. So they're looking all over for their king, and so what do they do? They turn back to the king that they rejected. Verse 22, so they acquired again of the Lord. Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he's hidden himself among the baggage. They can't even find the king. And then God, they have to pray to God. They have to go back to him again after they've rejected him. To go back to him and say, uh, we, can't, we can't exactly find him. 
It's like, it's like, you know, the toddler who says, you know, I need to do this by myself. And then they try to do it by themselves, and then they turn to you like one second later and say, can you do this for me? It's like someone was telling me, you know, the, the guy in the parking lot who's like who's desperate trying to get their Christmas shopping done, and they can't find a, a parking spot, and they're like, oh, Lord, please help me find a parking Oh, wait, there's one, forget it. They can't, they, they're still, it's just, they're so, de- God never stops being their king, even though they, they, they reject him. He's still kind to them. Oh yeah, check over by the, by the baggage. But notice the idolatry, verse 23, and they ran and took him. They couldn't wait to get their, their, their eyes on their idol. They, they pursued him. They ran and they took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his house. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? You know, they're, they're everywhere, aren't they? I mean, these people, they, they reject God, and then they reject Saul. It, there's, there's, there, there's just people everywhere, aren't they? They're, they're at work, they're at church, they're in our family, just Anyone who's a leader is a target. And they, they can't, they've never led anything themselves, but they just love to sort of criticize what other leaders are. Saul hadn't even reigned for one day. And they're already saying, can this man reign over us? And so that's the question at the end of, of, of chapter 10. How can, this, how can this guy reign over us? And it kind of echoes into the next chapter, that question. How will Saul reign over us? And it gets answered. In chapter 11, it says, before we hit chapter 11, also look at Saul's reaction here. It's important. Verse 20, uh, at the end of verse 27, it says, but he held his peace. More about that in a minute. Chapter 11, verse 1. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. Now, if you thought the NAFTA negotiations weren't going well, just be thankful that that the Ammonites aren't involved in that particular uh, treaty. So the people of Jabesh, they bring news to Saul. Now, let's take a look at the map here. The Jordan River goes right through uh, the Promised Land, the Sea of Galilee to the north, the Dead Sea to the south. The Ammonites were on the east side of the Jordan, which was, was still part of the Promised Land. Jabesh Gilead was up there to the north. If you read the end of the book of Judges, Jabesh Gilead actually factors into that story of the civil war that involved Benjamin. Gibeah is right in the heart of Benjamin. And so Saul hears this News In verse 5 it says, Now behold was coming in from the field behind the oxen. Saul didn't really understand this king thing. He didn't start building a palace. He just went back to the farm because there was work to do. He just, he just did what he was supposed to do. And, and Saul said, uh, What is wrong with the people? Why are they weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Israel. That is the answer to the question that the worthless men were asking. How will this man reign over us? He will do it by the power of the Spirit. 
he will do it because even in the midst of God's judgment, there's evidence and indications of God's mercy. So Saul rallies all the people together. He unites them as one man. They, they go to fight the Ammonites, pick up the story at verse 11. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. They win this great battle. And while they're all celebrating, verse 12 says, Then the people said to Samuel, oh, Who is it that said, uh, uh, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Again, Saul seems to start so well. He he doesn't take credit for the victory. I don't know if this... I don't know what was going through his mind, but he certainly says the right thing here, doesn't he? God brought the salvation. And he also, again, it says he held his peace. And then even though other people now are saying, let's put to death those people that were, that were complaining about you and undermining your leadership, Saul said, no, we're not going to do that. But again, as we're going to follow the story of Saul and this, this quest of searching for a king, we know Saul's not on a good trajectory. I mean, here's Saul starting out. People are openly, overtly, blatantly opposing him. Saying, we don't want you to rule over us. And Saul held his peace. But then later on, David, who never said anything negative about Saul, who only ever supported him and helped him, Saul became completely paranoid and tried to put him to death. It doesn't make sense, does it? See, the difference is the spirit. Because we're going to learn that the, the spirit... Uh, just as it came on Saul, because it was, a, it was God's mercy working in the midst of God's judgment, the Spirit would also leave Saul. And Saul would actually be the one who was the people's king, and Saul would be the one who would persecute and reject God's king. See, God always had a plan to, for a king. He even had a plan that it would be from the tribe of Judah, not from the tribe of Benjamin, he, he said that in, in, at the end of the book of Genesis, that, that the king will come from Judah. David was plan A, not plan B. But Saul persecuted and tried to reject God's true king. And then all throughout history we see God's true king being rejected. And all of these are indications of us as human beings rejecting God as king until you get to Jesus, the son of David, the true king. And he is rejected, isn't he? But the good news is that God refuses to be rejected. And God uses our rejection as a means of rescue and redemption. And that's what happened on the cross. But look, look, look at where it, it got the people of Israel to. It started in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Look where they end up in John chapter 19. With the true king standing before them, they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, Notice this, We have no king but Caesar. First Samuel chapter 8, they're asking for a king like the nations to rule over them. Like all the other nations, now they're asking to have a king from one of those other nations to rule over them. And they're saying, we have no king. 
Maybe you've been going through all of your life trying to be your own king or your own queen. Or maybe there's been certain idols in your life that you have been going after and, and you have learned that going after idolatry ultimately leads to slavery. If that's you today, you need to repent of rejecting God as king. You need to bow before him today and acknowledge that he is king over all. You need to make things right. And, you, and how, well, how do I make things right? How could I, if I've rejected, well, listen, he's made a way to make things right. Because Jesus went to the cross and ultimately, when Jesus went to the cross, he was dying. He was dying to pay the penalty for treason that all of us committed of trying to overthrow the ultimate king. And the death penalty that Jesus took on our behalf was, was for those of us, we are rebels who have rebelled against the king. And so to make things right with God, you need to recognize that God, even though we rejected him, has made a way to rescue and redeem us. And it's through his son, Jesus Christ, the ultimate king, who suffered and died for you. So it's admitting that you've rebelled against God, that you've had a, a, a revolt against him all of your life. It's believing that Jesus died to pay the penalty that you deserve for your treacherous acts. And then committing to following him as Lord, allowing him to rule over your life. You can make that decision today. And if you're here today and you're, you made that decision a long time ago at summer camp or Sunday school as a child or at youth group or later on in university or even last week... You need to understand that all of life is making sure that we are not rebelling and rejecting God. All of the Christian life is continually, as Jesus said, seek first his kingdom. And all these other things, all these other things that can become idols in our lives, we need to seek first his kingdom. And maybe you today need to renew your commitment to the kingdom of God. And, and, and get yourself off of the throne of your life. Take the crown off your head and make sure that that throne, that that crown is where it belongs. That God is your king. So let's pray that God's spirit would lead each and every heart right now down the, the road of repentance and right living before our great king. Let's pray together. Our heavenly father, we come to you in, name, in the name of Jesus Christ who is the king of kings and the lord of lords. God, I pray if there is anyone who... Uh, is here today, Lord, who has been living as a rebel, who has, been, who has been rebelling against you and rejecting your authority as king over their lives, God. I pray that there would be repentance. I pray, Lord, that they would sense your grace and your mercy in this moment, that even though they have seek to reject you, God, that you have sought to rescue and redeem them. And God, for those of us who know what it means to declare that you're king, God, I pray that you would do a work in all of our hearts, God, that we would renew our commitment to following you, to allowing you to rule and to reign over our lives. Because, oh Lord, the kingdom belongs to you, God. The, the throne belongs to you. The crown belongs to you. And so, Lord Jesus, we want to crown you with many crowns. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.